Welcome to Music History Monday for January 18th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Concerts I Would Like to Have Attended and One I Am Glad to Have Missed. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. January is usually a concert-heavy month, following, as it does, the holiday-heavy month of December. In a non-COVID environment, theaters thrive in the cold and early darkness of January, as folks look for something to do while they wait out the winter in anticipation of warmer, longer days and baseball season. January 18th is particularly notable for concerts that have taken place on this date, concerts that with one glaring exception I personally would have been thrilled to attend. Stuck at home as we presently are thanks to you-know-what, let us live vicariously through these January 18th concerts, even as we anticipate, hungrily, hopefully, the soon-enough-to-be-attended concerts of January 2022. We will focus primarily on the first of these concerts, the premiere of Dmitry Shostakovich's opera, The Nose, after which we'll do a quick prance through five other January 18th specific concert events of note. The Nose. We mark the premiere performance on January 18th, 1930, 91 years ago today, of Dmitry Shostakovich's first opera, The Nose, which was performed by the Mali Opera Theater in Leningrad, today's St. Petersburg. Completed in 1928, when Shostakovich was just 22 years old, The Nose is based on a satirical story by the great Russian nationalist writer Nikolai Vasilyevich Gogol, 1809-1852. That story, in the smallest of nutshells, goes like this. A bureaucrat is being shaved by his barber. Unbeknownst to both of them, the barber accidentally cuts off the bureaucrat's nose. It's only on the following day that the barber discovers the nose in his bread, of all places, and that the bureaucrat, on awakening, discovers that his nose is missing. And so the subsequent action of the opera. The barber does his darndest to dispose of the nose while the bureaucrat tries to find it. Meanwhile, the nose grows an entirely new body, which is ranked higher in the bureaucracy than its original owner. Craziness ensues, with the nose ultimately being beaten down into its original form and reunited with its original face. In the end, the story is about, among other things, the idiocy of the Russian bureaucracy and police. According to the British composer Gerard McBurney, born 1954, quote, The Nose is one of the young Shostakovich's greatest masterpieces, an electrifying tour de force of vocal acrobatics, wild instrumental colors, and theatrical absurdity, all shot through with a blistering mixture of laughter and rage. 
The result in Shostakovich's ruthlessly irreverent hands is like an operatic version of Charlie Chaplin or Monty Python, unquote. Shostakovich was inordinately proud of this, his first opera, and for the rest of his life he judged people by whether they were for or against it. That's because the nose inadvertently became a lightning rod for criticism in those developing days of Soviet artistic oppression. You see, despite the overwhelmingly positive audience response to the nose, the increasingly politicized critical community slammed the opera for its serious ideological flaws, modernistic style, and the rejection of traditional Russian operatic values. One review said the nose was the result of, quote, the infantile sickness of leftism, unquote. Shostakovich, 1906 to 1975, was stunned. He had never received criticism like that. He was deeply wounded. But it was nothing personal. By the late 1920s, the previously liberal artistic atmosphere of Leningrad was beginning to suffocate at the hands of Soviet ideologues. Since Vladimir Lenin's death in 1924, Joseph Stalin, 1878 to 1953, had slowly and irresistibly been consolidating his power. On Stalin's orders, a cultural revolution swept the Soviet Union between 1928 and 1931. Militant party hacks, acting in the name of the proletariat, but in fact acting for comrade Stalin, crushed the various artistic and musical societies that had come into being during the early and mid-1920s and replaced them with unions. Writers' unions, cinematographers' unions, musicians' unions, and so forth, which stressed, above all, conformity and uniformity with party policies regarding art and expression. Dmitry Shostakovich, the best, youngest, and brightest of the new Soviet composers, had managed to walk a fine line between personal self-expression and the increasingly repressive artistic tenets of the Soviet government. But that all changed with the critical abuse heaped upon the nose. Which begs the question, how did Shostakovich publicly react to the criticism of his opera and the increasingly hostile artistic environment that criticism represented? First, to his great credit, he continued, for the time being at least, to compose the sort of music he wanted to compose, and the opera Lady Macbeth of Metzensk, composed between 1930 and 1932, and his Symphony No. 4, composed between 1934 and 1936, would be the crowning glories of his so-called modern period. But while he might have walked the walk, Shostakovich most certainly did not talk the talk his need to live and compose in an increasingly hostile artistic environment turned him into a hypocrite, which in Shostakovich's case is another word for survivor. Having never had to walk in Shostakovich's shoes, we are in no position to criticize him, craven though his talk could be. For example, when in 1930 the Russian Association of Proletarian Musicians condemned what they called light music, 
meaning gypsy music and jazz, two genres of music that Shostakovich adored. He put his name behind the campaign to purge the community of musicians guilty of disseminating it. He wrote, quote, only together with all of Soviet society, leading widespread educational work on the class essence of the light genre, will we succeed in liquidating it, unquote. Please. And this from a guy who had incorporated an arrangement of Vincent Eumann's and Irving Caesar's pop song, Tea for Two, into his ballet, The Golden Age, that very same year. Some perspective. In 1930, when Shostakovich wrote those words, he was just 24 years old. His whole life was still in front of him, and not in his worst nightmares, or in anyone else's for that matter, could he have imagined the horrors of Stalinism that were about to engulf the Soviet Union. So he towed the party line verbally and continued to write the sort of music he wanted to write. Reflecting on the near-death sentence he received in 1936 for having composed the opera Lady Macbeth, we know in retrospect how well that turned out. Jazz at the Met. On January 18, 1944, 77 years ago today, the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City played host to a jazz concert for the very first time. Of gigantic significance was the fact that the featured performers who shared that august stage selected in a poll by Esquire magazine were a mixed group of black artists and white artists. Louis Armstrong and Roy Eldridge on trumpet, Oscar Pettiford on bass, Barney Bigard and Benny Goodman on clarinet. Goodman's group joined the concert via a live hookup from Hollywood, California, a miracle of modern technology. Sidney Catlett on drums, Al Casey on guitar, Art Tatum and Teddy Wilson on piano, Coleman Hawkins on saxophone, Lionel Hampton on vibraphone, Jack Teagarden on trombone, Red Norvo on marimba, and Billie Holiday and Mildred Bailey on vocals. Insane talent. The concert, sponsored by the National Women's Council of the Navy League of the United States, raised $650,000 in war bonds and was broadcast around the world on NBC and Armed Forces Radio. Now, I would tell you a recording of that concert entitled Immortal Concerts Esquire Jazz Concert was made and is today available on CD and for download. Note, please, that the CD jacket erroneously gives the date of the concert as being January 13th, as opposed to the correct date of January 18th. Something to keep in mind. Well before Jackie Robinson broke the color line in Major League Baseball in 1947. The color line had been broken by jazz musicians going back to the mid-1930s. Rock and roll would further help to obliterate the color line in the 1950s and the 1960s. And it is no exaggeration to say that many of the preconditions for the civil rights movement in the United States were created by jazz and rock and roll. Babs 
and LBJ. It has become something of an American tradition for high-end singers to perform at presidential inaugurations, a tradition that tells us much of what we need to know about a president's taste in music. For example, Barack Obama was sung into office in 2009 by, among others, Beyonce, Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, Renee Fleming, Queen Latifah, Garth Brooks, Athlete Judd, Stevie Wonder, John Legend, Sheryl Crow, and Pete Seeger. That was quite a show. Back in the 1960s, such inaugural concerts were a bit more modest, but well worth attending, or so I think. On January 18, 1965, 56 years ago today, Lyndon Baines Johnson was inaugurated for his first full term in office. Entertaining the crowd that day were Barbara Streisand, born 1942, and the dearly departed Bobby Darin, 1936 to 1973. Uh, for our information, Streisand would go on to sing at Bill Clinton's inauguration in 1993 as well. Excuse me, but really, was there anyone on the planet more fabulous than Barbara Streisand in 1965? I think not. Dang, but I would have loved to have seen and heard her then. A Timbler and Rolling Stones At 12.29 a.m. local time on December 23, 1972, a magnitude 6.3 earthquake rocked Nicaragua. The epicenter was just 17 miles northeast of the center of Nicaragua's capital, of Managua, population 1.4 million. The Temblor, not Tremblor, the Temblor caused catastrophic damage to metropolitan Managua, destroying the city's central business district, its water and power infrastructure, its firefighting capability, 53,000 homes, and killing between 4,000 and 11,000 residents, injuring 20,000 more and leaving 300,000 people homeless. Sitting in his office in San Francisco, the rock and roll producer Bill Graham, born Wolf Volodia Grajonka, 1931-1991, immediately jumped into action. He booked the Forum in Los Angeles for January 18, 1973, and got on the phone with representatives of the Rolling Stones and Carlos Santana, asking those bands to play a benefit concert for the victims of the earthquake. Why the Stones and Santana? Graham later explained, quote, I reserved the forum right after the Nicaraguan disaster. It was a basic situation, one and one make two. Jagger is married to a Nicaraguan lady, that would be Bianca Perez Mora Macias Jagger, born 1945 and married to Mick, from 1971 to 1978. And Chipito, that's Chipito Arias, Timbali's player for Santana, is from Nicaragua also. So I contacted the Stones and Santana people. The Stones were immediately favorable. They themselves were thinking of doing something." Unquote. Santana and his band opened the concert with an 11-song set. Then the comedy duo of Chich Marin, 
and Tommy Chong took the stage and delivered a 20-minute routine filled with their standard drug references. Yeah, Chong told the crowd, The downer freaks are here. They're the ones facing the wrong way. Finally, the Rolling Stones took the stage, Jagger in a black cape and rhinestone-studded headband for a 19-song set. That one-hour, 20-minute Rolling Stone set can be heard on a link posted in the print version of this podcast. It was, by every account, a heck of a show, one that raised over $350,000 from ticket sales alone, a record amount for a benefit show at the time. How do you spell gross? Wendy O. Williams, O., for Orleans, 1949 to 1998, was an American singer and songwriter. She achieved her 15 minutes of fame as the lead singer in the punk rock group Plasmatics. Ms. Williams was known particularly for her onstage shenanigans, tearing off her clothing, fastening clothespins to various parts of her now exposed anatomy, blowing up musical instruments, shooting off guns, and, perhaps, her pièce de résistance, chainsawing guitars. But it was on January 18, 1981, 40 years ago today, that this queen of shock rock achieved what was perhaps her finest onstage moment when, during a concert in Milwaukee, she had simulated sex on stage with a sledgehammer. Yes, of course, the cheese-headed Milwaukee cops arrested her. Was perhaps the sledgehammer a minor? Charged with, quote, prohibited behavior on licensed premises, unquote, as well as resisting arrest and assaulting a police officer, Williams went on trial in Milwaukee on June 3, 1981. After a week-long trial, and heaven knows how many taxpayer dollars thrown into Lake Michigan, all charges were dropped. Williams, in turn, sued the Milwaukee police for sexual assault and using excessive force during her arrest. In the end, a jury rejected her claims. Back to Maestra Williams and her brief but, we hope, satisfying tryst with the sledgehammer. I trust you will not think less of me when I tell you that I would really like to have seen that. Finally, festival seating are collective derrieres. Festival seating. That phrase is a misnomer, as it has nothing to do with actually sitting down. Rather, festival seating refers to a large, seatless open area directly in front of a concert stage, a first-come, first-served area where concert attendees stand, shoulder to shoulder, during a show. This incidentally, was the M.O. of Shakespeare's Globe Theater, as well as most opera houses until the 19th century, when folks stood in the area today called the orchestra and sat in the boxes. Many rock and roll and pop acts actually prefer to use festival seating, believing that it allows their particularly rabid fans to get up close to the stage and to thus generate extra excitement. Sadly, festival seating can also lead to tragedy if the crowd is not carefully controlled. 
Such a tragedy occurred 30 years ago today, on January 18, 1991, when three teenagers were crushed to death at an ACDC concert at the Salt Palace Accord Arena in Salt Lake City. Here's what happened. Salt Lake City is not a major tour stop for big-time rock bands, so the appearance of the Australian heavy metal band ACDC on January 18, 1991 was, for the locals, a big deal. Fans lined up overnight to be able to purchase tickets, 4,000 of which were designated and sold as open admission for festival seating in front of the stage. The total audience that night was near capacity. There were 13,294 attendees. The venue's capacity was 13,920. When the band took the stage, the crowd went nuts. And as soon as they began their first number, those in festival seating rushed forward towards the stage, knocking over and crushing those members of the audience who were already close to the stage. Brandy Burton, was among those who were knocked over. She was unconscious when she was rescued and taken to the hospital. Ms. Burton, who was attending the concert with her 19-year-old roommate, Elizabeth Glaussi, later remembered, quote, we were excited about the concert and were laughing, having a good time when we walked onto the main floor. When ACDC came on, there was a jolt forward. Immediately, Liz and I were knocked down. We were about five people from the center of the stage. I remember the pounding of the music. It was incredibly loud. About 10 or 15 people were right on top of us. People were falling on top of our faces, our bodies. I was at the very bottom, and Liz was on top of me. We were screaming for help, but there was no way to pull us up. We couldn't get any air. After 10 minutes or so, I said, Liz, You've got to breathe. Try to breathe. Please breathe. I looked at Liz, and she said, I can't. Then she closed her eyes. The last thing I remember saying is, Please, God, don't let us die. Unquote. From their vantage point on stage, the band hadn't a clue that anything was amiss. ACDC was some 30 minutes, some say even 40 minutes, into their set before they finally realized something was terribly wrong. Lead singer Brian Johnson, born 1947, asked for the lights to come up and told the crowd to calm down. Barricade manager Russ Boyd, who'd been trying in vain to get... They pulled out many injured audience members, including the previously quoted Brandy Burton. Her roommate, Elizabeth Glaussi, did not survive. Also dead were Jimmy Boyd Jr. and Curtis Child, both of whom were just 14 years old. It was a terrible tragedy. Everyone involved was badly broken up, and for his part, ACDC's lead singer, Brian Johnson, was unable to sleep for a week. Meanwhile, the debate over festival seating continues. As if parents of teenagers don't have enough to worry about already. Mothers and dads, do not let your children stand in festival seating. Thank you. To sample and download one or all 
of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.